Hello. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Hello. Good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to be up here. For those of you who don't know me, I am one of three JJs at CCF. I don't earn the name, but I'm the only one that goes by it, so it's mine. Um, and as is tradition for my first sermon, I have some pictures of my family. There you go. Uh, I, if, if the, the attendant among you will see, first of all, I'm very young. And that uh, it's actually a picture of a picture. You can see the picture frame and the light in the top right. Uh, partially that's because I think it's funny and partially it's because that's what I had to work with. But uh, there in the bottom left is me. And then going up the line, that's Kiki, my youngest oldest sister. I'm the youngest, if you can't tell. Uh, then up is David, then TJ. Then down at the bottom is my mom, my dad, my oldest sister, Anna. And then in the top right, you can see Anna's husband, Jared, holding their firstborn, Lacey, my adorable niece. Then bottom left is Nathan, that's Kiki's husband, and ho he's holding Lydia, their newborn, my next adorable niece. And then and Anna is there, he's TJ's, she's TJ's wife, there's a lot of genders here. Uh, <laughs> and she is holding Dembe, who is Anna and Jared's second, my only nephew, and Lydia, uh, just incredibly adorable. And um, of course, the only people that really matter here are my nieces and nephews, so let's just get those up there. They're, they're just so freaking adorable. I love them so much. I've put uh, extra pictures of here for your convenience. And while I could say a lot about my amazing family and my parents, uh, I'll keep it to this. I didn't grow up as a pastor's kid, but my parents have transitioned uh, to being pastors for a house church, which is called Table of Grace. In addition, they've started uh, now running a non-for-profit organization called Emmanuel Network, which kind of tries to help set up that, um, that kind of house church, house churches in the St. Louis area. And they're incredible. I owe them a great deal. Ooh, I gotta stand firm here. <laughs> Enough about my family. Before we get carried away, let me pray. Holy Spirit, come. May these be your words, not mine, and may they find open hearts. Amen. Keeping with Reed's tradition of many titles, here we are. The Now and the Monopoly of the Not Yet, or the Monopoly of the Now and the Not Yet, or Be Careful What You Wish For. No, it's or <laughs> The Difference Between the Truth and Lies is the Truth, or Luking a little closer at the enemy, we're in Luke today, or I can't wait for Easter, we've seriously talked about the crucifixion a whole year. So when I was asked to preach on the passion narrative in Luke, unsurprisingly, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to focus on. I think it'd be a little weird to have that just in your back pocket. Um, but before looking at the text, I did have this idea that dealt with trying to understand the juxtaposition of the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, Hosanna with the week later shoutings of the crowds to crucify Jesus. And as a member of my parents' house church and as a CCF small group leader, I've had a lot of experience reading scripture and asking the question, what sticks out to me? So that was the approach I took. And when looking at the text, it didn't seem to support the idea that the Hosanna shouters and that the crucify him shouters were the same people. But I was quickly assuaged by the fact that I had latched on to a different aspect of the story. It seems to be present lurking in the darkness and working behind the people responsible for the crucifixion, I could not help but notice the workings of the enemy, the devil or Satan. Wow, we got here quick. Okay, let's talk about Satan. <laughs> Instead of putting a disclaimer in front of everything, 
I say individually, I figured I'd just put an opening disclaimer here at the beginning on the topic of Satan. I'm confident enough to say that it is unbiblical to completely ignore the existence of Satan or the enemy, but I fully recognize that his level of personification and is open to interpretation. One thing I do know is that looking around at the world uh, where it is today, it is clear. <laughs> uh, wait. One thing I do know, looking around at the world, is it is clear that things are messed up. I think at a base level, we can all accept that due to the fall, the relationship between God and man has been fractured, and now that sin is a part of human, human's DNA. Going a step further, I think that some people's understanding of Satan starts with the serpent in the garden and ends with Jesus' temptation at the beginning of his ministry. I think some people, if pushed on the subject, would take the argument that the crucifixion changed the nature of the game, and that sure, Satan was existent in the, back in the biblical times, but he doesn't really exist today. I think perhaps a lot of people here are what I would call agnostic about Satan. In the camp that you know that the Bible talks about Satan and the devil and the enemy, but it's kind of uncomfortable, and uh, it's a subject that you really just haven't looked into very much. Still, others may go a step further and recognize him as a force present today that acts against the will of the Father. I'll be honest, I come from a background where my mom taught me about speaking in tongues when I was 11 as we cleansed the apartment that we had just moved into of demonic strongholds. In other words, I think of him as a literal being with legions of demons at his command who are working against the will of the Father and are present today. I mean, that's a little terrifying, right? One of the things I love about CCF is that we come from different backgrounds and we can invite each other to explore understandings of the Bible that are totally different from what we're used to. I definitely don't think that my view of the enemy is necessary or the only one way to view scripture, and I, just, I think that the points and questions I bring up should be applicable to most biblically derived views and understandings of him. If you are of the belief that Satan does not exist or act today, I would ask you to challenge that belief a little. But more immediately, I'd invite you to step out of your comfort zone and wrestle with the significance of the existence of the enemy in the Bible and just sit in what that might mean for us today. As much as we may want to, we can't throw the things out of the Bible or ignore things that make us uncomfortable. And this is probably at its most frustrating, at least in the New Testament, when we look at the book of Revelation. And I won't claim to what, hap what, what time period Revelation is referring to or the literalness of it. I don't claim to understand the metaphors or the hyperbole or even the reason for it in a lot of ways. In fact, when you have to go to Revelation to find answers, I think that kind of supports the idea that we're working with some fringe and perhaps dangerous areas or interpretations of the Bible. But with that acknowledgement and that red flag aside, I think that it's worth mentioning that there is significant, hard to ignore biblical support for the idea that the serpent, the devil, and Satan are referring to the same thing. The Bible uses Satan or Satanas for Satan and Diabolos for the devil and office or sometimes Nahash for the serpent. To be honest, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm sure that there is something to the distinction between the two forms of serpent, but for our purposes, uh, I think that these passages at least help establish that references to these beings in the Bible are at least in part interchangeable. So in Revelation 12:9 it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And again in Revelation 22, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
found in the next verse of that Revelation passage is a curious sentiment that seems to support an uncomfortable metaphor that I've heard from a mentor of mine back in my old church in the vineyard. The phrase at the end of the paragraph in chapter 20, verse 3, says that after a thousand years, he must be set free for a short time. My mentor compares the battle between God and Satan to a game of Monopoly. In Monopoly, typically you know who's going to win well before the game is over. In this version, God has more properties and power and infinite money, and we know that he's going to win. But we live in the now of the kingdom and the not yet. Satan still collects rent. Sometimes it feels like God has landed on boardwalk and Satan happened to own it and have hotels on it at the time. Satan has real undeniable power that works against the will of the Father and sometimes he must be set free for a short time. While I think the passion narrative and specifically the part closest to Jesus' crucifixion is a well-known story and familiar to us, I want to talk and walk through it, pointing out some of the things that I've noticed that relate to the enemy throughout our story. I think my choosing this methodology is probably related to my viewing of The Chosen, shout out to The Chosen Small Group, and my listening to the Bema podcast, uh, which I'll take the time to shamelessly plug and explain a little bit. The Chosen, for those of you who don't know, is a series that walks through the life of Jesus, but it specifically focuses on the humanness of Jesus and on Jesus' disciples. I think it's definitely shaped my view of scripture in a way that makes it much more tangible and much more real and powerful. Likewise, the Bema podcast attempts to look at the big picture in the Bible from an Eastern perspective. Marty does an incredible job looking at the Hebrew and connecting the scriptures to form one coherent story. I think it's important to try and understand the motives of the people in this story, which can help us realize who we relate to and help us look at how the enemy attacks us. Based on my understanding and the experience the enemy has a lot to work with based on our own desires and often works off of whatever desire is currently there. This idea is kind of supported by C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, which for those of you who don't know is a series of satirical letters that C.S. Lewis wrote from the perspective of an experienced devil called Screwtape who is writing to his young charge Wormwood and he's advising him on the ways that he can tempt humans. C.S. Lewis writes, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. We'll look at a few peoples, people and groups uh, that present themselves in the story and speculate on what drove their motives. And in looking at their top priority, we can start to see what lies they believe and look for which truths that they're missing. So we're going to be in Luke 22. We're starting in verse 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. We already see two of these aforementioned groups forming. First, we see the chief priests who are told that they ha we, we are told they have a fear of the people. In some ways, I think that this is a literal fear for their life if they overstep since just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke in chapter 20, they're afraid that the people would stone them to death if they denied John the Baptist as a prophet. Similarly, later in that chapter, same chapter 20, after Jesus tells a not-so-subtle parable insinuating that the chief priests are set on killing him and insinuating that he's the son of God, Luke says that they sought to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people. The chief priests aren't stupid, 
and they know how to control a crowd. They seem at least partially to take advantage of this idea that nowadays we call anchoring bias. This is the phenomenon that causes people to, to rely too heavily on the first piece of information we're given about a topic. It's looking at a t-shirt that's priced $1,000 and then one price at $100 and thinking that the $100 t-shirt must be a cheap bargain. The priests know that if they seize Jesus amidst him healing and preaching, and the crowds will fight back. But if the priests are able to seize him in the night and present him to the crowds as an already beaten and arrested man, then they can present a different anchoring point to the people. This is not the man who was just seen healing and preaching, but a criminal who needs to be punished. The good thing is, this would never happen to us nowadays, he says, setting up another paragraph in his sermon. This anchoring bias, combined with our tendency to make first impressions incredibly, incredibly quickly, still shows up when someone is arrested today, or more likely when they are canceled. Sometimes we may take a second to look deep at the facts and wait to hear the often too little, too late response from the person being accused, but much more likely we resign ourselves to not watch any more Will Smith movies. There could never be someone as falsely accused as Jesus, and people really do mess up, and there should be consequences to terrible actions taken by celebrities and everyone. But accepting judgments passed on by others is a slippery slope that I think merits at least being aware of and cautious of, especially when it comes to the people in our community. It takes a lot of intentionality and effort to even recognize when you are under the influence of anchoring bias, let alone overcoming it. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. Well, I guess I don't have to stretch and theorize about Judas's motivation and great desire to see that the enemy attacked him. That's good because all I could really do in that department is refer you to a great Bama podcast episode on the betrayals of Jesus, which points not to the act of selling Jesus out as Judas's betrayal, but to Judas's reaction afterwards. Here, I'm looking for the working of the enemy in a story, and his clearest sign of action is not in the crowds chanting to crucify Jesus. It's not in the chief priests or even in the Romans who beat and mocked him. The most direct connection to the enemy is from one of Jesus' best friends. If one of the 12 can be overcome by Satan, then it doesn't seem like anyone's off limits. No matter how close you are to God, the enemy can still work, and this story may act as a warning that the closer you are to him, the more directly he may try to work against you. This seems further supported later in the story, since the only two times Satan's specifically mentioned in this chapter, in this section, are in reference to Judas and Peter. I'll be honest, I struggle a lot with unredeemed figures in the Bible, and Judas perhaps takes the cake. God turned this brutal punishment and crucifixion into a redemption for the whole world, but amidst that story is a character that betrays that trust and ignores the open invitation that Jesus has given us for redemptions for redemption and forgiveness. I think another lesson to take away from Judas's temptation is the, important, the, the importance of surrounding yourself with people of the Lord that you know will stick with you even when you inevitably submit yourself into temptation and who can pray against the enemy's attacks on your life. Equally important as having those relationships is being willing to rely on them when you realize that you've messed up. On the flip side, you may find yourself as one of the friends or loved ones that's continually sticking with and forgiving the Judases in your life. And I'm confident that Jesus would have been quick to forgive Judas if he asked for forgiveness, but I can't say the same for the disciples or myself when I put myself in their place. 
I think back to Noah's sermon last semester when he encouraged us to recognize God's ability to redeem sin and use it for the kingdom. It's very difficult to continuously forgive and be there for friends that seem to drag Jesus' name through the mud, but I look to Judas for motivation to continue to persevere. If Judas' real betrayal of Jesus is his inability to accept Jesus' forgiveness, then we should be fired up by the chance to forgive someone when they do come looking to us for repentance. Continuing on in the story, Jesus instructs Peter and John to follow his instructions to prepare the Passover, and then Jesus establishes the tradition of communion with his disciples. And towards the end of the dinner, he lets on that he knows that someone among his disciples is about to betray him. And as a result of them questioning who is the betrayer, a fight breaks out about who is the greatest, which I think is just the perfect summation of the disciples. I don't know what else could be. After Jesus explains that they're missing the point, We'll pick up in verse 31, where Jesus addresses Simon. 22, verse 31 and 34, through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded permission to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. <laughs> Jesus didn't pray that Peter would not deny him. His prayer is that once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm struck by the difference in how Luke presents the enemy in Peter's case as compared to Judas's. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded permission to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus' prayer doesn't seem to deny that permission. It sounds a little bit like God landed on one of Satan's properties. Rent was due to Satan, and his price was Peter's denial. Even still, that analogy makes me a bit uncomfortable. The difference between Satan entering you and Satan sifting through you seems to be related to the heart of the person in question. I suspect that Jesus was able to peer into the hearts of Judas and Peter and saw that Judas was not willing to accept forgiveness after his betrayal and saw that Peter still would turn again and be able to strengthen his brothers. We'll talk a little bit more about Peter when he does deny Jesus, but continuing on in the story, we have first this, the next section is kind of a bizarre section where Jesus seems to be making sure that the scriptures in the Old Testament would be fulfilled through him. But regardless, the next part that I want to look deeper at deals with Jesus and his disciples praying on the Mount of Olives. So picking up in verse 40, and when he came to the place, the Mount of Olives, he said to them, them being his disciples, pray that you do not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Originally, this passage stuck out to me because it seemed that Jesus kind of not got mad, but for lack of a better word, at his disciples for not praying as earnestly as he did. Jesus, the Son of God, yes, fully human, but also fully God, just prayed a prayer, a prayer session where one, at the beginning, an angel appeared, already we're a bit deeper than any prayer session I've been a part of. Two, he was in agony and therefore prayed more earnestly. That's an interesting cause and effect relationship that I'm not sure I can relate to. And three, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
I think it's reasonable to assume that this prayer session probably took a long time. <laughs> I think the disciples prayed very hard as well, and maybe they were just working under the assumption that you can only pray so much not to enter into temptation. <laughs> Understandably, the disciples eventually fell asleep. However, upon looking at it a little deeper with the rest of the story in context, Jesus' prayer instructions seemed to grab my attention. Jesus asked his disciples to pray that they do not enter into temptation. After Satan finished tempting Jesus earlier in Luke 4, verse 13, it says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. I submit to you that this might be the opportune time. From my own experience, the enemy is drawn to successful attempts at bringing the kingdom. He seems to come from at some of your highest points. I mentioned my parents, who in the last few years have transitioned into being uh, head pastors of a church as well as co-founders of a non-for-profit organization. My dad was a mechanical engineer for over 20 years, but God seemed to be opening a door for my dad to become a pastor. Really, this open door was, came in the form of my dad being laid off from his mechanical engineering job. God really wasn't worried about letting the closing door of engineering hit my dad on the way out, but within 24 hours of my dad being laid off, his father, whom he had been repairing his estranged relationship with, passed away. After my dad was a pastor for a couple of years, my parents decided that they wanted to start a house church, church plant. Satan continued his attack. Around the time that they started thinking about this, starting this plant, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. Not to be deterred, my parents continued with their plans only to have their announcement to the church be met with my dad being diagnosed with prostate cancer. On top of this, the enemy followed up with a COVID bomb, which is especially scary when both of your parents are high risk. My parents reasonably questioned if now was really a good time to take on a new church plant. But through much prayer and encouragement, they went on to start my home church, the Table of Grace, in October of 2020. If you want to hear about how through my, my parents' perseverance, God powerfully dismantled the enemy's attack, I encourage you to listen to my testimony that I gave on a Wednesday podcast, I think it was last year. The enemy continues to act against the families in our house church today, but I take that as an encouragement that this house church must be really scary to the enemy. The fierceness with which Jesus is asking his disciples to pray becomes a little bit more relatable with the understanding that the enemy strikes hardest when the kingdom is coming. The crucifixion is the culmination of the Son of God's 32-year life and ministry, so it seems reasonable to think that there may be some backlash from the enemy. Sometimes it feels like the enemy saves up his rent collection and waits to strike until, well, like Luke says, until an opportune time. If you leave here with one piece of advice or takeaway, let it be this. We have the power to resist anything the enemy throws at us, but it often requires powerful prayer. By powerful prayer, I don't just mean finding the right words or even praying consistently. I'm talking about angel-summoning, agony-inducing, sleepless, blood-sweating prayer. I can't say that I have any experience with such powerful prayer, and honestly, the thought of seeking that seems to scare me to the point that I don't know if I want to try. But something tells me that the disciples prayed not to enter into temptation more earnestly than I ever have. And Jesus' response, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's on this mountaintop, at the Mount of Olives, that Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Moving on. Judas comes with a crowd, and his other disciples think that it's finally time to go all zealot crazy, and one of them cuts off the ear from a servant of the high priest. 
And after healing the chief priests and ensuring that his disciples understand they're not to fight with earthly swords, then we're going to pick up in verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you the day after the day, Day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Another theme that I notice in this story that I think it gives insight into the enemy is the theme of power and of darkness. Wow, that's a bleak sentence. <laughs> but really, I just mean that we too often rely on our own power and neglect the power of God that he openly gives. We see the chief priests acting out of a desire to keep their power. We see Judas potentially trying to force his version of zealot power into Jesus' ministry. But more importantly, we see Jesus, Jesus neglect the power of the Lord to save him. And we see Peter rely on his own power to protect Jesus. It seems we need to understand where our strength and power is meant to come from. I think Paul in Ephesians 6 helps address this. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The chief priests don't seem to recognize the power that they are desperately trying to hold onto is the power of darkness. When it comes to our hour, whether you're alone late at night struggling with some addiction or you're surrounded by loved ones but only feel the power of darkness, Jesus asks us to rise and pray that we do not enter into temptation. Picking up where we left off in the story of Luke, verses 54 and 55, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a great distance, or at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then, just as Jesus told him it would happen, Peter goes on to deny knowing Jesus three times. Peter seemingly thought that Jesus needed his assistance as a protector to watch over him, and he didn't seem to remember the truth that Jesus had told him before. We're told by an angel at the grave in Luke 24-7 later, that back in Galilee, Jesus had said, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, crucified on the third day and rise. I think it was based out of this fear, a fear of Jesus' death and not of his own death, that Peter denies Jesus. I think that like Peter, I sometimes needlessly put myself in positions where I'm more likely to deny God. I need to rise and pray that we do not enter into temptation. I originally planned to also talk about the rest of chapter 22 and chapter 23 <laughs> of Luke to look even more at the chief priests as well as the Roman soldiers, the other disciples, and the crowds, but I seem to have had more to say than I thought. I think the biggest takeaways that, that at, that's added from those sections is to realize that all of these groups had an incorrect understanding of power in one of two ways. They either believed that their earthly power was something to write home about, or they thought they did not believe that God's heavenly power was something to write home about. In either case, we don't need to radically change our worldviews. We just need to recognize that we need God, and we need to rise and pray that we don't enter into temptation. I think there's a daily exercise that Tyler Matthews pointed to in his testimony that's incredibly fruitful. The best way to recognize the truths that the enemy is keeping from you is to look for the lies that you believe about yourself. 
I encourage you just to take a minute a day. Maybe it's while you're thinking of your manna or right before you go to bed, but take a minute a day to say out loud one lie that you have believed about yourself and one truth that you know to be true that contradicts the lie. I'll leave you with some examples of my struggles and truths that I found in case you can relate. God is punishing me for not being good enough. God is well pleased with me and only wants what's best for me. I will never get out of this cycle of sin in my life. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not good enough to be loved by God. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My worth comes from how many bricks I make. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Everyone else cares about that little mistake that you made, and it's consuming their every thought. Okay, I'll go ahead and field that one self, myself. Get over yourself, JJ. What are you doing? I should be able to meet the needs of all my friends, and I'm failing. This is where I broke out my encouragement notes. You're an amazing friend, and I truly cherish the relationship that we have. God can't use me to lead. Your leadership this week was amazing. I'm kind of a really big deal, guys. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm glad that I don't need God's help in this area of my life. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, God's just going to do all the work for me. I just get to sit back and watch him work. Go and make disciples of all nations. Rise and pray that you do not enter into temptation. I find that the strongest lies have a little bit of truth to them, making them so much easier to believe. I'd strongly encourage you to establish a support system that can be a source of truth for you. Looking back through your encouragement notes if you went on spring break or letters that have been written to you, finding truths in your daily manna if you're doing that, which you should be. <laughs> Using your Bible to look for truths and never hesitating to ask your friends, family, or staff here at CCF if something that you believe sounds like it's a lie from the enemy or if it's a true struggle that you need to give to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to dig a little bit more into your scripture and to share a little bit about what I think that I'm learning with your people. I pray against any lies of the enemy that may come up as a result of this talk. I pray that all the truths that he is keeping from us would spread like wildfire through encouragement and love. May we continue to be a group of people that encourage one another and call each other out. May we continue to grow in our understanding of you, and may we not enter into temptation that seems to always surround us. Amen.